and thank you for listening to Let the Right Films In, your podcast on the IMDb 250. We took a little break, but we're back. And joining us for the first time this week, she's too sad to walk all the way from California, so she's going to podcast from where she is. It's Eva Friedman. Hey, guys. And here with me in the blanket fort, I can't get rid of her, despite the fact that she ruined pizza, Kayla St. Ange. What up? And I am here as your host. Uh, you might have seen me in San, Fr- San Francisco. I was a really hairy guy. I looked kind of like a bear. I'm Tyler Hannon. How are you two doing today? I'm fantastic. How are you guys? Awesome. <laughs> I just totally talked over you like an asshole. <laughs> That's all right. That's what That's the okay. editing is for. I still love you. It's fine. Thanks. I don't because you've ruined pizza. But I didn't. <laughs> so, so much broccoli. We were gone for a couple weeks, which might sound is a weird thing to introduce to our listeners to because we had podcasts that came out the past two weeks, but we haven't recorded a regular podcast in a while. And so I don't know about you, Eva. You've probably watched a few things since the last time you were on this podcast, which was never. I have. Kayla and I have also watched a few things this week, but we're going to limit it just about two each. And Eva, you're going to go first. What awesome. have you watched recently that you're really into? Or you don't have to be into it. It could be something that made you really angry because we like to do some of those sometimes. But what are two things that you want to talk about? Well, I am all about positivity in the new year, so I want to talk about two things that I really loved. Um, the first thing would be Free Held. Uh, the movie with Ellen Page and Julianne Moore about uh, Laurel Huster and Stacey Andre, or Andre, I can't remember which one it is, but about the civil rights fight that they had for the LGBT community in Freehold, New Jersey, which is actually the town right next to where I grew up. Um, so it's a movie that really meant a lot to me, and it's a story that I'm very passionate about. And it's, you know, Carol is great, and I love that movie, but I also want Freehold to have its moment. And I think it's a really important movie. It gives a lot of important information about, you know, LGBTQA plus history that a lot of people don't know about. You know, this was a really big part of, you know, us getting those equal rights and starting that discussion. So I'm really thankful that they turned that into a movie. And, you know, the performances are fantastic. You know, I was really blown away by Ellen Page and the chemistry that she had with Julianne Moore. And I just thought it was really well done. And it was very true to the story. And... Um, yeah, I loved it. So that would be the first thing. Yeah. I've kind of forgotten about that one because it just kind of, it didn't get, you know, the rapturous reviews of a Carol or some of those other Oscar movies. And it kind of just disappeared from the conversation the way a lot of movies do in the months right. leading up to the end of the year. And so I'm glad you brought that up because I remembered like the terrible movies like Stonewall and I remember the really Ugh. good one that everyone talks about in Carol, but I had forgotten about Free Health, even though it has two of my favorite actresses in it. Yeah, Eva and I actually had a conversation about that the other day, about how when it comes to uh, movies that showcase minorities, there's kind of like a there can only be one kind of attitude. So if everybody's talking nice about Carol, then everybody suddenly forgets about Free Held, and like, I don't know, probably similar things happen with other minorities like when we had a thousand Nelson Mandela biopics in one year and that kind of stuff 
Yeah, and like I said, you know, Carol is a great movie that I love very much, but, um, you know, Freehold is... Freehold is a historical, you know, movie about LGBT history, and I think it's really important that people know about that. And, you know, also just the story behind getting it made. You know, Ellen Page was trying to get this made for a long time. This took years to make. And I think that the product that they came out with was really worth the labor of love that it took to get this movie made. It's also really important to note that it's, like, historically accurate, again, because so many movies like to sanitize their leads or stonewall yep or you know just like invent an entire person to make the protagonist for some reason (laughs) yeah and there's there's definitely some stuff that they add in to like kind of hollywoodize it but you know for the most part it's really true to the story and it is based off the documentary about laurel hester and that whole fight so it's really well done and i know that you know Stacy was happy with it and that's really important to me as well so I really think that it should be part of the conversation in the same way Carol has been especially when I think people get like afraid of dealing with things that have such a weight because like Carol is for the most part a pretty feel-good movie so I think everybody just kind of got wrapped up in that instead of wanting to talk about you know the hard parts of our history definitely and I mean Carol's kind of the first movie with a happy ending in that respect so again i do think that carol is equally as important and i just want you know free help to have its time as well we should just have as many lesbian movies as we want all the time yeah the answer is to just put lesbians in everything yes (laughs) i mean we should just be everywhere And this is where I insert the shameless plug. If you want to hear more about Carol, please go listen to our year in review podcast. <laughs> where about I talked 2015. about it. <laughs> yeah, where I talked about Carol. But uh, that, that, thanks for sharing that one with us, Eva, especially since, like I said, I had totally forgotten that, which is my bad. Uh, what's the second thing you were going to talk about? The second thing I'm going to talk about, which I think might surprise some people, I just binge-watched the new season of Degrassi that they did for Netflix, and I was really pleasantly surprised and kind of blown away at times by it. I have never seen a single episode of Degrassi. What kind of upbringing did you have? A conservative Christian one? (laughs) Dude! Like, it's... (laughs) Degrassi was never necessarily the best acting-wise or, like, writing-wise, but they always talked candidly about really important issues. You know, they tackled gay bashing, and they tackled racism, and they tackled rape, and they always did it in a very, in my opinion, a very realistic way. And, you know, the move to Netflix really allowed them to get darker and edgier, and the, the whole season is really about, you know, what does it mean to be a feminist, and is it okay to be a feminist? And they talk about, you know, men's rights activists... And there are LGBTQA plus storylines. There's a really well-acted addiction storyline. And I they had a whole episode on consent that I was really blown away by. And it was just so cool to see a show that really helped me find who I was, you know, really tackle these stories and help the next generation. Oh my gosh, that's so awesome. Should make all of my siblings watch that. Well, and the way that like the way that they did it, they really I don't want to say it's necessarily a reboot because it is characters from like the previous seasons, but they're really trying to start a new thing. So there are no references to previous characters from like other seasons. Like they don't talk about, you know, Jimmy, but the they do start with a Drake quote. 
But, um, yeah, like, you don't have to know what happened in, like, season one when they're now, like, season 14. You can just jump right in and watch us. It's 10 24-minute episodes, so it blows by, and, you know, it's, I was really impressed with it, and happily so. I was running out of things to just, like, completely binge on Netflix, so maybe that'll be my next, my next thing. (laughs) I highly recommend it. That sounds super up my alley, which... You would know, and I trust your Yes. Opinion, so. <laughs> yeah, and again, the consent episode was really special, and I think it's really an achievement for them because, you know, it's not just no means no. You know, they actually go into the fact that, you know, you need consent every time you have a sexual experience. Just because you're dating someone doesn't mean you have the right to their body. And they really spell that out in the episode, and I was really impressed because it's a conversation that a lot of TV shows geared at teens are shying away from. So it was nice to see Degrassi really willing to get their hands dirty on it. That's awesome. All right. Thanks so much for bringing those two to us, Eva. Kayla? Kayla, what have you watched recently? Lots of things. Uh, So the first thing I'm going to talk about is going to kind of keep in line with our already very gay opening themes. Hell Um, yeah. (laughs) So, okay. So as a bit of a preface... Sometime, I want to say a year, year and a half ago, I found out that in the 80s, Tony Scott directed a vampire movie starring David Bowie, Catherine Deneuve, and Susan Sarandon, and that Catherine Deneuve and Susan Sarandon had a lesbian love scene in it, which blew my mind and made me very excited. (laughs) And so when I was trying to track this movie down at that time, it's, it's called The Hunger, by the way. I guess I probably should throw it out there. Um, but when I was originally trying to track this movie down, it was completely impossible to find. It wasn't streaming on Amazon. It wasn't streaming anywhere. Um, it was sold out everywhere. Like, pretty much my only option was to purchase it for, like, 20 bucks on DVD from Amazon, which I could not justify because I hadn't seen it so I read the book which was really good and I liked it a lot I blew through it pretty quickly and so a couple weeks ago like on a whim I just happened to look it up on Amazon again to see if maybe it had gone down in price and lo and behold it was finally streaming so last weekend Tyler and I got a bottle of whiskey and we sat down and we rented this movie on Amazon And holy shit, I have never been so disappointed in something that I had (laughs) so many expectations for. Um, It was interesting visually, and Susan Sarandon and Catherine Deneuve were great. Uh, Susan Sarandon sports this really great, uh, like, permed pixie cut throughout the whole movie. It's very 80s. But uh, they decided to axe, I would say, roughly 70% of the plot from the novel, like, I felt like everything was moving ar- moving along pretty well. Like, David, the whole premise of the movie is that David Bowie's character starts to age and die. And so... Which, Kath- nice timing on that, Kayla. Sorry. Nice yeah, that's, a, that's dark, man. I didn't remember that when we started watching it. But anyway, so Catherine Deneuve has been, like, following this scientist who is played by Susan Sarandon because her research deals with like sleep and immortality and how to stop aging and stuff like that which is a super simplification of what she does in the book but like so anyway so she falls in love with Susan Sarandon's character and decides that she wants to turn her and obviously spoilers but so 
we've gone through like an hour and a half ish of the movie and I'm thinking cool now we're getting to the cool part of the story because in the book uh, she turns her into a vampire and then the character spends the rest of the time like using her science brain to cure herself because she doesn't want to be a vampire and in the movie she goes back to Catherine Deneuve and stabs herself and then for some reason all of her past lovers come out of boxes and they make Catherine Deneuve age even though she wasn't supposed to and then they put her in a box and randomly Susan Sarandon is alive again at the end and that's the end of the movie and for about 10 minutes after it ended Tyler and I were both just like what the hell just happened I wish Um, you guys could see my face right now because I'm (laughs) so just lost (laughs) yeah that was pretty much uh, how I felt (laughs) it's not just that they changed the ending from the book it's that the ending they gave it makes absolutely no sense the climax that comes about has like nothing presages it. It it just turns, happens. It just <laughs> happens because something needed to happen. And then the movie ends. And they couldn't think of any better way to do the reversal that they do. I just like there were so many interesting things in the book that they could have done and they were just like, you know what? What if she just dies but then she doesn't actually die and then she dies but doesn't actually die and nobody's really dead and they're all in boxes. <laughs> that it's it's what just a, a shame that you guys couldn't have rented it from like your local video video rental store. <laughs> like if there was like a blockbuster nearby that could have, or like <laughs> I think it's called like <laughs> that could have uh, had it. Like I might, I might. <laughs> Tyler has to go back and bleep that out. No, seriously. It's Did no, it's fine. It, no, no, no. It's a running joke on the podcast that if we mention the video store that we work at, and now that we've already said it, I'm just gonna say it. <laughs> Tyler has to put in a bleep sound effect. There was one episode where we just said it like 50 times. I should just bleep out this whole section. No, this is important. <laughs> well, it's a shame that you couldn't like rent it somewhere. Like I might try calling around to some of the, you know, local video rental stores or maybe some wow. of the non-local ones. And That's uh... so much effort. <laughs> so, well, it was since... easy the first time I did it. <laughs> since nobody else knows this joke, um... The day that Star Wars The Force Awakens came out in theaters, somebody called me and asked if we had it on DVD. And I informed them, no, sir, we do not have that movie, you moron. And I tweeted about it. So Eva looked up the phone. Well, no, Eva asked Tyler for the phone number to the store that we work at. Immediately gave it to her. No hesitation, no questions (laughs) asked. And she called me and I didn't know it was her because we had never spoken on the phone before. And for about two minutes, she tortured me. (laughs) Well, in my defense, I did say, you know, I am a drummer that just moved to L.A. Could you guys ship it to me when you get it? Like, thinking that that could be a dead giveaway. Nope, I I was just so baffled. at (laughs) Clear dead giveaway. Okay, whatever. I was... (laughs) You, you get into customer service mode and you stay in customer <laughs> service mode. Anyway. It was very impressive. <laughs> so, moving on from Eva's hilarious pranks and Tyler's vicious endorsement of them. Um, <laughs> the other thing that I'm going to talk about that I've watched is, as Tyler lovingly referred to it before the podcast started, this week's anime trash bag corner. Because <laughs> apparently all I do now is watch anime. Um, I would just like to clarify that you have given yourself that designation. (laughs) And I told you, maybe you should just make it official. (laughs) Right next to the Chris Evans corner, we'll have the anime trash. (laughs) Yep. Uh, Basically the same. How dare you? Wow. How 
dare you. Wow. You're just jealous. It's true. I came out to have of a good who? time. Of Chris Evans, obviously. Who wouldn't be? Yeah, that's... I'm offended, man. Jeez. <laughs> I'm gonna put another guest firmly in the Chris Evans corner away from you. Anyway. Yeah, but I have Kyle, so... Okay, whatever. Okay, but Kyle's Kyle. not me. <laughs> this is true. And Kyle's not here right now. He can't protect you. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so the other thing that I watched recently uh, is an anime called Code Geass, which is one of the more popular anime, apparently, in the world, which I didn't know before I started watching it. But uh, basically, it is the most baffling conglomerate of anime stereotypes, but somehow it all works. Like, you have, okay, so the basic plotline is that in, like, a post-World War era, Britannia, which I'm assuming is just, you know, Britain, has taken over Japan and, like, renamed it Area 11, and there's, like, a huge class war between the Elevens and the Britannians, and one of the Britannian princes, one of the Britannian princes, Lelouch, hates his home country because he thinks his dad orchestrated his mother's murder. So he plots this whole rebellion. But by the way, he plots this, he decides to do this rebellion because he's good at chess. And he's like, I'm good at chess. This means I will be good at war. And that just works out for him. But also... It's like a chess game. Movies taught me that. But also, (laughs) he meets like this celestial being called C2 who grants him a power called Gias, which allows him to make direct eye contact with someone and one time he can get them to do whatever he wants. So like he saves himself originally by getting the soldiers that are about to murder him to just kill themselves, which is pretty gruesome. But yeah, so mixed in with the war rebellion, uh, he also attends high school because everything in anime happens to high schoolers because they're apparently just the most important people in japan but yeah they're in high school and he's also on the student council so there's a lot of like zany student council slice of life school stuff that happens and like some sci-fi stuff there's a random episode where they're stranded on an island and it's like the awkward camping episode and yeah basically it's just a lot of things that normally would kind of be cringy but for some reason, when you throw them all together, it's pretty entertaining. I think it's just because the writing is really good and the characters are interesting. So that has been this week's Anime Trash Heap Corner. Uh, <laughs> I'll let you know what we end up binge watching next week. <laughs> I'm still just baffled by all the things you just described coming out of the same show. <laughs> yep. There's probably, there's like other stuff that I'm forgetting. So like the celestial being C2 is obsessed with pizza. Like I'm actually pretty sure that Pizza Hut is a sponsor on this show because she orders from Pizza Hut like every episode. That's amazing. <laughs> it's pretty sweet actually. She's just like this no nonsense like super just like brusque woman and then like she'll come out and she'll be like so I ordered pizza on your credit card again. <laughs> and it's awesome. That's great. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so Tyler, what did you watch this week? Good. Take your word for that. Twice I saw The Revenant because I had two different people who in my life who wanted to see it. So I saw this two and a half hour Leo Suffers movie that is the front runner for best actor and is looking more and more like it might nab Best picture, uh, best picture, and best director award wins at the Oscars too. It is, 
You haven't even seen it. Allow me to ah. <laughs> This movie is directed by um, Alejandro Iñárritu, who directed last year's Best Picture winning Birdman. And it stars Leonardo DiCaprio suffering a lot, as you've heard about over and over. And Tom Hardy being yet another gruff, weird character with an indecipherable accent. And he's my favorite part of the movie. Tom Hardy is great in this movie. I think he's fascinating and gives this character who could be very one note a certain amount of desperation. Leo is fine, but he's mostly just suffering. (laughs) He certainly does the most suffering. I'm not sure if he does the best suffering, but he does the most suffering. So if you, like, condense it down to a highlight reel, I'm sure the best suffering is in there somewhere. The movie is gorgeous. It is... uh, They used only natural light, which is another big thing. Uh, The cinematographer was Lubeski, who has won two straight Academy Awards for the in that category for Gravity and Birdman. The movie is gorgeous. Um, the acting performances are generally pretty good, and I really, really did not like this movie. <laughs> I don't really understand the overwhelming praise for it. I think it is mostly an exercise an exercise in look what we can do. And while much of it is done pretty well, that doesn't make it a good movie. Most of the characters don't add up to much. There are some decisions, some subplots, some dream sequences that are just silly. And there are certain sequences that are there pretty much only to prolong the movie. And the whole thing that is supposedly at the center of this is it's a man surviving nature. This man's search for revenge. But... You don't really care about him at all. I've seen better interpretations of man against nature, man surviving nature. I've seen much better versions of a man out seeking revenge. I've seen better Western adjacent period piece movies this year in Bone Tomahawk and Slow West. I have not seen Hateful Eight. But as I've never had this reaction to a movie where I so very much like two or three parts of it. And find the rest of it so very just exercises in what you can do. I guess how I'd summarize that is I'm glad that this movie got made because it is very impressive and it does something that a lot of movies can't do or don't have the budget or the leeway to do. But just because it's impressive doesn't mean it's good. It's kind of like with Avatar. Avatar is an incredibly impressive movie visually. It's not a very good movie, though. So, yeah. So, much like Avatar, I hope this ends up losing to a superior movie. How long was The Revenant? It's two and a half hours. So, it's definitely bloated. No, oh, it's really fucking long. It's too <laughs> long. It is, it's not as bloated as Hateful Eight, because Hateful Eight is three hours. But, from because it's a Quentin Tarantino movie, I assume there's some riveting dialogue some great performances a lot of action and while i don't need all of those things to make a good movie i don't think any of the silent moments here are as good as you know the silences and the tension and the weight that other directors can have leo this movie you could put a lot of different people in that role and it would be about the same 
so I don't find it very impressive. And that's just like the, he can go ahead and win whatever, so he can stop talking about it, and so he can stop trying so hard. Yeah, and you know that's the th- that's the issue that I really take with it is that like, yes, Leonardo DiCaprio is a great actor, and he does not have an Oscar. Guess what? Lots of great actors and actresses don't have Oscars. Mm-hmm. Lots of people are far more deserving of the annual nomination that Leo gets. And honestly, it's an honor to be nominated. And the fact that he just seems like so salty about the fact that he hasn't won one. It's just really off-putting and it makes me not care about the movies he's in. And one of the reasons people don't care about the Academy Awards is because they'll do these makeup Oscars. So Leo's going to get the Oscar this year. He shouldn't. But they feel bad for not giving it to him for Wolf of Wall Street or one of those other movies. He's due. And so much like someone on a podcast pointed out, Denzel Washington won for the movie after Training Day and not for Training Day. It's like these makeup Oscars, which sometimes I'm okay with, but I just I have such beef with this movie. I am very biased with this movie because I think it is aggressively average as a whole, whereas there are many superior movies with more superior parts that will go by the wayside and get completely ignored, not even just, like, in during the Oscar ceremony, but just as a whole. Like, it's so amazing how Carol didn't get nominated for Best Picture. Like, Well, and it's interesting that you say that there's a lot that Leo has to convey without words, like just body language and everything, and that he doesn't do it, because to me, that's something that, not to backtrack a little bit, but that's one of the things I loved about both Carol and Freeheld. Um, Kate Blanchett does an incredible amount of work just with her body language. And, you know, whenever she's, you know, flirting with Rooney Mara, she's twirling her hair and you can really see how she's trying to not be, you know, overly flirtatious because of the time period and where she is and everything. And the same in Freeheld, you know, Ellen Page plays this really shy, soft-spoken character. So a lot of it is how she walks and how she, you know, her posture and everything. And I think that that can really make or break a movie. And I think it's a shame that it, you know, broke the revenant for you. I mean, I would say that it's kind of just like another in a long line of generally fine, straight white dudes getting super hardcore recognition for things that everybody else does better than them. And another thing it does is it does these really long takes that are really impressive, but at a certain point, a long take or like an a particularly impressive shot but generally long takes become a service to themselves and they're no longer servicing the movie when you are so when it is so clear that it wants you to realize how long this take is from the very beginning when it's being so showy it, it can be impressive but it also takes longer and another thing i want to say about the revenant and i could go on forever because i keep going on about it on twitter and everywhere we have else literally too. i have literally banned tyler from talking about it in three <laughs> conversations this week okay but another thing about this movie you all remember drive it's a great movie that came out a couple years ago directed by nicholas winding refn and then uh, only god forgives came out and my beef with that movie was that it took everything Drive did and kind of amped it up, except it was bad there, and it kind of validated all the criticisms people had about Drive that I thought were wrong. They were right about the movie that came after. So, with Inuritu, I really liked Birdman. I really enjoyed that movie. But The Revenant takes so many things he does in that movie and really amps them up that they're so big and detracting and that um, distracting and they take up so much more of the movie that it's making me rethink Birdman because 
in this movie, there are aggressively long takes that are gorgeous, but distracting. It pans to the sky so many times, <laughs> and you could tell that he had such a ball stitching together these long takes in Birdman by panning to the sky that he did the same thing here because... Oh God, this well, you have to ha- remember that Birdman's like actual gimmick was that it was meant to look like it was all done in one take. Yeah, right. But I just feel like with all of this stuff, it just is like, and with only God forgives too, it's super self-indulgent. Yeah, it's so, being like, oh, definitely. you gave me a gold star for this one time. What if I did it five hundred times more? I thought Birdman was more interesting. I had more ideas, and for the most part, its characters were more interesting, partially because it just had more characters. Um, just I. And also, I just didn't find the movie's premise wasn't super interesting to begin with, but it did nothing to reel me in. So, just that is a long winded diatribe on my many issues with The Revenant. Well, and I haven't seen The Revenant yet, but I did really love Birdman. I saw that movie, you know, maybe three or four times in theaters. I was really blown away by, you know, the long takes and the staging it to look like one giant shot. And it never felt obvious to me that that's what was done. I didn't pick up on that until my second watch of the movie. So it, you know, it just didn't seem self-indulgent to me. So I was kind of looking forward to The Revenant because of the director. But now I've, after seeing you go on for as long as you have on various social media websites and now hearing it in person, I'm completely rethinking that. It's a bummer because Inuritu is actually one of my favorite directors, and I was really excited last year to see him finally kind of get, like, his day in the sun. Right. Especially because I walked out of Birdman like energized and like remembering why I loved film and why film was so interesting to me. And I just feel like when I finally muster up the courage to see the Revenant, I'm just going to be annoyed the whole time. (laughs) What was, if you don't mind me asking, what was the score like in the Revenant? Because I mean, the score was really almost one of the stars of the movie for me in Birdman. The score is good. I don't notice it as much as in Birdman, partially because it's not as quite literally intrusive as Birdman where the drummer is actually in the movie, Mm -hmm. but it is a lovely score. And there are a number of moments where it does work really well. It's not just your stereotypical swell important things are happening kind of thing. It is the score is one of my favorite parts of the movie. And it is one of the things that redeems the movie for me a little bit. So I do think, I think that got nominated and I have no beef with that nomination. And I do have to, we do have to wrap up The Revenant because it's gone on for far too long. Oh, oh no, I was, I was hoping you could complain about it a little bit longer. <laughs> Sass mom in the house. You I've know it. So, I've gone on for so long that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let it go. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so, like, I, I, like, I don't necessarily want to ruin the movie for people, but I, I, I am spiteful and react badly when I feel things get way more credit than they deserve. <laughs> And I will say that a friend of the podcast, very close friend of the podcast, Kyle Minton, did enjoy The Revenant when he saw it. He texted me the other day and he was wondering if we could still be friends because he liked The Revenant. <laughs> and of course he can because film is subjective and there are a number of impressive things in this movie. And I understand why people like it. I just aggressively did not. And I'm, I went so long on that. I'll just be quick. We saw The Forest. It's a terrible movie. Uh, we should have never done that. Don't, don't 
go to the forest. The you know part... this already, but don't. <laughs> it's so aggressively awful. The best part of the forest was the actual pound and a half of popcorn that I ate and the shot of whiskey we did in the parking lot before we went in. <laughs> I, and these, that was it. Those were not the two movies I thought you were going to talk about, Tyler. What did you think I was going to talk about? I thought you were going to talk about Room and Diary of a Teenage Girl. Oh! He just had to get his aggressive complaining out. And I was so excited for you to talk about Diary of a Teenage Girl because I thought that we would end up segueing into what I tweeted to you in response about you, about that movie resonating so strongly with you. And I was really excited to talk about that. Oh, that is a good, that would have been good. What if we cut out? What if you guys just have me on again? That is also a valid idea. Uh, I'll probably talk about Teenage Girl in the next podcast, though. God damn it, Tyler. (laughs) Happy. To do <laughs> awesome you tool <laughs> i was like genuinely excited because you've been talking about that one so much i thought you might oh. do the revenant but i really thought you were going to do diary of a teenage girl and i was so excited because i, I haven't I seen it yet on, i wish i hadn't gone on so long on the route re- you know what can we do it and i'll cut i'll like cut down the revenant if you want yes. i mean you don't have to but no, no, do you have like a time constraint because we're, no. we're already like an hour in no yeah. i'm totally good we can go on for as long as you guys want so wait, 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 ready? Wait, 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 I'll give you the segue for this. All right. So Tyler, now that you've told us how much you loathed The Revenant, was there anything you've seen recently that you actually enjoyed? Well, it's funny you say that, Eva, because I recently caught up with The Diary of a Teenage Girl. Um, the Diary of a Teenage Girl is this really incredible movie that came out last year and got a tremendous amount of... It's another one of those movies that I'm always spouting on about like some obnoxious no <laughs> elitist know-it-all but the diary of a teenage girl is much like tangerine which i talked about recently a movie that is rather small but was just so good and so fresh and new that it got just about universal praise in online critical circles and at you know different festivals and such it is a movie about this young girl played by Belle Powley living in the 1970s. And the movie kind of hinges, it's a lot about uh, her kind of her sexual confusion. And, you know, you know how, what it's like to be a 15 year old. You don't know anything about yourself. You're trying to find yourself and she's discovering what she wants, what she's good at, like what's who she is. And it's kind of a rough thing to talk about or recommend because part of finding who she is involves having a relationship with her mother's 35 year old boyfriend and that is a big part of the movie the that relationship and where she thinks she is going into it and kind of what she discovers about herself about this guy Monroe played by Alexander Skarsgård and it really I don't want to give too much away partially because the journey finding all these things I don't want to give it all away because going on this journey with her is such a surpassing experience um I will say beyond this movie just being good it was another movie that I identified with quite a bit or I found things that I found uh, themes that kind of reflected on my life. And part of what I'm wrestling with with this movie is how 
this is not a movie for me at all. I am a 25-year-old white cisgendered man. Uh, so many things are made for me. <laughs> but this is not a movie for me. And that's kind of why I love it. Because I love... Because I'm so used to experiences tailored to me. I love being a part of this experience that seems so real. And it is based on a graphic novel that was somewhat based on the uh, writer's own life. It, it it feels so very real and lived in. And from a point of view of someone who I am so completely different from, but there are certain aspects to growing up and finding ourselves and having these, um, having all this confusion that I've felt on a very deep level, despite the fact that this is not for me and that this main character is much different from me and kind of wrestling with that what lessons to take from that and how to express that has been kind of like a second experience beyond the movie itself beyond this great movie it's i mean it's kind of like what i was complaining it's kind of why people will call blockbusters empty or while I was playing with the revenants because you can have a good movie, but if it doesn't say anything, how good of a movie is it? Well, this is a movie that is tremendous in execution, but also has so very much to say beyond that, that is interesting and worthwhile. And I'm just kind of wrestling with that. There's just so much to dig into. Yeah, and I'm excited to hear you say that because I haven't seen the movie yet, but I do know what it's about. And I have been following, you know, the what critics have been thinking of it. And first of all, I think it's really important and refreshing to see a story about a teenage girl, you know, exploring her sexuality. I think that's really important because we're told so early on that we can't do that. So then when we do get to that point, it's really hard to get through. So I'm excited to see that depicted in film. I'm especially excited to see that depicted in a good film. And, you know, I also think it's important that there's a coming-of-age story that spoke to you when it's not for you, because I haven't seen Boyhood, so I can't speak for it personally, but a lot of women that I spoke to who saw Boyhood, they didn't feel like it spoke to them. And part of my issue with how Boyhood was presented was that they kept talking about how it was a universal story. And it's not. It's a specific story. Just in the same way that, you know, Diary of a Teenage Girl is a specific story. But when you tell people that they should identify with something that they don't, that's where you start to lose the connection. And so I like the fact that, you know, I, maybe I would get something out of Boyhood if I saw it. I don't know. But I like that Diary of a Teenage Girl doesn't seem to be trying to tell people that they should be, you know, getting something from it. Because not everyone is going to, and that's okay. But I think the more that any movie tries to tell you that you should understand it and that it's universal, I think that's when people start, you know, questioning things. And I don't think, I think that this is an important movie and I want people to see it and I'm excited to see it and I'm glad that it, you know, hit as hard as I was hoping it would. Yes, and I, uh, a couple of things to wrap it up because we are going long. I do want to, I do want to commend the director, Marielle Heller, this is her first feature film, I believe, and I really hope this gets her the chance to work on some other things because this is a really – the movie bleeds 70s. There's so much 70s about it, but in a way that doesn't feel 
like grasping or retro and the it the um the main character she's an aspiring comic book artist which is really cool in itself it's just there are so many interesting things about this movie it's the 12th thing i mentioned but it also integrates all this comic these this comic cartoony imagery into it too really seamlessly so i really hope this gets her more work as a director especially given how much conversation there's been about about a lack of diversity in Hollywood in general, especially with female directors. And also Belle Powley, who's was actually, I forgot, 21 or 22, playing this 15-year-old. You would not real. She really nails the part of a 15-year-old. It's She's incredibly good. And there was some hopefulness that she would get some more awards love, but she has gotten some from, you know, some of the smaller critical awards, which I'm really glad for because this whole movie would fall apart without her and she is tremendous in it. And it is streaming on... Oh, no, it's not streaming on Netflix. So It's on DVD. That. You can rent it from uh, various... <laughs> Which might be how I found it. Thank you, you two, for letting me go on and on and on always about two movies that are very important for very different reasons i'm just hoping this means that the revenant is out of your system now and you can stop talking about it in your sleep (laughs) i just have a lot of feelings (laughs) i do want to say if anyone takes anything out of this i hope they took that teenage the diary of teenage girl is something that you should watch and forget about the revenant just even my rant about Moving the Revenant. Moving on from that. Speaking this of show, feelings. I want them to take. Okay. Speaking of feelings, and Tyler is never going to speak of The Revenant ever again. But this, my feelings on it. This week, we are talking about the Disney Pixar movie Inside Out. Can I say that curse word now? What do we do now? Nothing's working. Why isn't it working? We have a major problem. Oh, I wish Joy was here. We can fix this. We just have to get back to headquarters. That's long-term memory. You could get lost in there. Think positive. Okay. I'm positive you will get lost in there. What was that? Was it a bear? There are no bears in San Francisco. I saw a really hairy guy. He looked like a bear. This place is huge. Imagination land? No way. Dream Productions? Rainbow Unicorn. She's right there. I loved you in Fairy Dream Adventure Part 7. Okay, bye. I love you. You can't focus on what's going wrong. There's always a way to turn things around. It's Broccoli. Congratulations, San Francisco. You've ruined pizza. So this week we're talking about the latest Pixar film, Inside Out. It came out only last year and did quite well for itself, unlike The Good Dinosaur. Poor Good Dinosaur. It made over $356 million in the domestic box office and almost made $500 million in the foreign box office, giving it in a haul of $856 million total. All that on a budget of $175 million, which is a lot of money. Fortunately, they made like four times that amount, so it's all good. It was nominated for Best Animated Feature in the upcoming Academy Awards. It should have been Best Picture, but they slotted something else in its, that place instead. <laughs> uh, the movie was directed by Pete Docter, 
who has worked on six different Pixar films and directed Up and Monsters, Inc., which seem to be fairly well-reviewed. And also Ronnie Del Carmen. They both wrote and directed the movie. And it stars an all-star voice cast of Amy Poehler, Phyllis Smith, Bill Hader, Louis Black, Mindy Kaling, and Richard Kind, with music by Michael Giacchino. The movie is currently number 100 on the IMDb 250 with a score of 8.3 it also has a 98 percent tomato meter rating on rotten tomatoes and a 94 metacritic score so people seem to like this movie a little bit eva did you like this movie a little bit no i loved this movie a lot um anyone who knows anything about me knows that i love disney very much um and this did not disappoint, you know, from top to bottom. The cast, the animation, the story, the climax, the emotional beats. It. I don't know that this is my favorite, and I don't know that I think it's the best, but I think, hands down, it's the most important thing Pixar and Disney have done. And I, I was really blown away. The word achievement comes to mind. You know, it came to mind multiple times for me when I saw this, and I, I'm really just blown away by what they accomplished with this movie. Kayla, do you like this movie a little bit? (laughs) So funny story. Uh, When they released the teaser trailer for this movie, I was kind of super underwhelmed. And I was, because I had been really excited for it when I had first heard about the concept of it. Is that the dinner table scene? The dinner table scene, yes. And I just remember feeling like, really? Like, this is just so basic and kind of insulting. And then I watched the movie and I was wrong. I was super extra, really very crazy wrong. Um, I Okay, so when we started watching this movie, I was kind of having a bad night already because of work-related things and because I watched the last episode of Parks and Rec and just, yeah. So I was already kind of feeling very emotional. And then we watched this movie and somehow an entire tree just fell into our apartment and got into my eye. Oh, no. It watered a lot. Yeah, it really hurt. But yeah, (laughs) no, but for real, um, I loved this movie and I felt really bad for judging it based on one scene. And I maintain that it was still a confusing, like, first look at the movie. (laughs) I agree. It was just so, it just made me feel so good inside and at peace with myself as, like, a multifaceted human, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah, that was how I felt about it initially. And, yeah. Well, I also love this movie. And so it will probably just be a good while of us talking about how great this movie is. But this is a really incredible movie, and so I can't feel that bad about that. Um, I truly do think it was one of the best movies to come out this year. And it is one of my favorite Pixar films. I have seen it twice now and really don't have enough good things to say about it. I wish I wish this is the movie I had given my money multiple times because it is so just it is tremendously entertaining and funny while also being incredibly smart and perceptive about kind of being a human being, especially being a young person and growing up and getting older and life getting more complicated. It's truly impressive how well it's done. And 
even listening to Pete Doctor talk about coming up with a movie because of his own, like when he moved himself as a child to a completely different place or his own daughter's kind of emotional shifts as she got older, it only further adds to the experience because there's this is no accident. Like they worked on this for years and years because that's how animation works. And it's kind of incredible that this is the masterpiece that came out the other end. I think that animation is like something that we should really talk about too because yeah. it's so colorful and it's so fun. Like the glitter effect that they all have on their skin. I it didn't notice took them 8 months to come up with that. That's incredibly impressive. I didn't notice it until about like 30 minutes into the movie and once I noticed it I was just mesmerized by it the whole time. <laughs> It's kind of like the uh, with there's always one thing it seems the Pixar film the animation they talk about and like with uh, I remember a couple of years ago when Brave came out it was Meredith the Curls. hair yeah right and it's just we always kind of find that thing and focus on it but with good reason because it takes forever to come up with these things and it's incredible that they're able to do it just how lively it all seems and it's this completely imagined cartoonish world but we're so in it we're, we're in it we feel it it's mesmerizing well the whole abstract sequence is incredible i mean from start to finish they go through the four stages and i love that they collapse it to 2d and you're just watching a 2d pixar movie for a couple of minutes that was so clever too that every bit of that was so clever and that's one thing i love clever little jokes i love when movies or television just kind of has that joke on joke like just tons of jokes they're just coming at you from all sides but it's always dangerous when doing that because it can derail what's happening it's probably a lot of people's beef with community one of my favorite shows but um the fact that this movie can kind of have this tale while also being as funny as it is is kind of baffling and just so many of the clever things they do with the concept whether it be the uh how it handles memory or you know the annoying song that gets stuck in your head just the way that they do that is the funniest thing in the world i think well i love go ahead ahead. no you (laughs) i was gonna say i think a lot of the like the the way that the the joke stacking works is also a credit to like the voice cast because you have a seasoned cast of like really talented comedians and people who have worked in comedy television and movies and stuff like that. And I think like with any other cast, it wouldn't have worked so well, but because you have these people who know when enough is enough, they're better at gauging when they should just leave it be or when they could probably improvise a little bit more or anything like that. Well, and I love that all of their jokes are tasteful and inoffensive. Like I, I could not, get over the fact sitting in that theater for the first time that they made a gay bear joke that was funny and wasn't offensive. Like they, it wasn't the butt of the joke that the dude was gay or that the dude was burly. It was just a funny joke. Like I loved that they did that. And I think it really, you know, like you said, I think the cast, the casting just blew me away for this movie. I have never looked at the cast for a movie 
and felt more strongly that no one else could play those roles as I did with this movie. Yeah, they kind of got the the all-star dream team lineup for this movie. Who better yeah. to play Joy than Amy Poehler or Disgust than Mindy Kaling or Phyllis Smith is Sadness. And I mean, I think Bill Hader can do anything with his voice at this point, but his real his um kind of frantic zany nature is really perfect for fear i love it so much amy poehler's voice just and i don't know if it's because i spend so much time watching parks and rec which has kind of like a similar like feeling like a security blanket feeling but just something about her voice is just like so warm and happy and empathetic that when she's voicing a role like this i just I just felt overjoyed. Like, every time she talked, except for the scene where it was sad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, to me, Mindy Kaling was, you know, the best of the best. I felt like she just, you know, ran with it. I, I tried really hard to think of who else I could see in that role. And there was, I couldn't come up with any names. I think it was perfect. And I'm so glad that she said yes, because I really think that, you know, the character doesn't have quite as much to do in the movie, but, you know, her voice and her voice acting in this film really make that role shine. She doesn't get to do as much as of the emotional lifting in this movie, but she is so key to so many of the jokes. Exactly. And also, Lewis Black is anger. It's, it's inspired casting, really. <laughs> it's almost too perfect. Like, I can't handle just how perfect it was. <laughs> there, there are a select few people who didn't like this movie, or even more so some people who like this movie but maybe have some reservations or some things that don't, that for them, keep it from being like the level of maybe a Toy Story or a Toy Story 3 or, you know, the mm-hmm. gold standard of Pixar. One thing that seems to, as much as anything in this movie, divide people is Bing Bong. And I just kind of want to talk to you about the character of Bing Bong, whether you think he works, how well you think he works, kind of what your reaction was to this kind of over-the-top character voiced by, again, perfectly by Richard Kind. Well, first of all, one thing that I want to talk about that I did not notice until in the first time I saw this movie was that in the opening scene when they're, you know, opening the movie and they're showing Riley growing up, you see Riley drawing Bing Bong on the wall and singing the song. And I did not notice that until last night when I watched this movie again, and I thought that that was really cool. Um, But anyway, to your question, I do think he worked. I think that imaginary friends are a really big part of growing up. I think they're a really big part of our mentality and our emotions and what we're going through as we're growing up. And I think it was really important to show that I I was just really moved by the idea that he was kind of what saves the day a little bit. I mean, Sadness is definitely the hero of the movie, but I loved that, you know, letting go of Bing Bong was, was what ultimately got Joy back to headquarters. And I thought that that was a really cool message. And I... I loved him as kind of the tour guide of, you know, outside of headquarters and everything. I thought he worked really well. I, now that, like, I've seen the whole movie through, I like him more than I did at first. Mostly because until he did the good thing and let go, 
I legitimately thought he was going to turn out to be evil. Like, every time Joy handed him, like, the sack of the core memories, I was like, no, don't give those to him. He's going to destroy them and do something stupid. And, like, because, like, like, in children's movies, there's such a propensity to have a character like that that right. appears good at first and then turns out to be bad, especially in Disney movies. So I was just, like, on edge like for the whole time that he was you thought he was gonna you thought he was like hans from frozen you thought he was gonna turn on you (laughs) i I really did i thought he was gonna like dump the core memories down there or something which i guess like having seen the whole thing and like understanding his character better doesn't really make any sense because all he wanted was to just like hang out with riley again for a little bit not destroy her core person which, yeah, watch, yeah, watching it back and knowing that he's not the villain, there's nothing really that paints him as the villain except our being conditioned to expect that villain. Like, when I watched it again, it, I was like, oh, there's nothing that makes me think that he's going to do something wrong. Mm-hmm. So I think that's more of, like, an outside force coming into the movie that, you know, you're you're looking for a villain in a movie where there really just isn't one. Yeah. That's kind of what I want wanted to get into as we're talking there is no bad guy or villain in this movie even the thing that you think she's fighting which is like the sadness and the loneliness is like the whole moral of the story is that that is not the enemy we're not like keeping sadness at bay or defeating sadness is not the core tenet of the movie so there is no villain at all it's all about just kind of coming like feeling being okay with feeling things and coming to terms with change and getting older and growing up. And that's really fascinating because we don't often get anything in our entertainment that is quite like that, where there is no villain, like not even a feeling or a concept or anything like that that is a villain. There is no dark side there. But there's still conflict. I think right. it just makes it more of like a human story. Yeah. I mean, I think the way that it tries to paint it is that like if you have to find a villain, it is that conflict inside of yourself. And like dealing with depression and mental illness and stuff like that, I think it's really important to have a movie like this to illustrate that all of your feelings are important and all of your feelings are valid, even if you feel like they're trying to hurt you. Because initially in the beginning of the movie, they don't want Sadness to touch any of the memories. They just want her to stay, like, in her circle. And they perceive her as a threat until they figure out that that's not the case. And I think that that is such an important lesson for kids to have or even, like, for adults to have. Yeah. Because it's really easy to get sucked into that, like, everything sucks and I just want to lay down and die and not do anything. And I just – it's really nice to have – um. It's really nice to have, like, the, the diversity of your own emotions and your own, like, mental cocktail validated in yeah. a children's movie, of all things. Well, and I think it's interesting that, you know, right from the get-go, it's really obvious that this movie looks to explore and explain why we experience sadness. You know, when Joy is introducing all of the emotions... She gives anger, fear, and disgust positive attributes. She describes anger as, you know, basically standing up for us and really caring about, you know, fairness and being treated equally. And she kind of just, and she explicitly describes fear as keeping us safe. And she pretty much does the same for disgust. And then she comes right out and says, I don't know what sadness does. I don't know why she's here. 
And I think that that's really important because for so many people, we don't know why we're experiencing sadness and they don't understand why it's there. So I think it's really, you know, this movie is a simple exploration of a complicated issue. And I think that it does a really good job of not necessarily feeling like a kid's movie. Like this doesn't, you know, I I didn't watch this movie thinking, oh man, I bet I would have loved this a lot more if I was a kid. I would have loved to have seen this as a kid because I wonder if it would have given me, you know, words and tools to get through certain things that I didn't know how to get through. But I felt pretty content seeing this as an adult. Like it felt good to me as a movie. It didn't feel like a kid's movie. It just felt like a really great classic movie. I feel like Disney, and especially Pixar's strength, is exactly that too. They know how to make a movie that's actually enjoyable for your entire family without pandering. Which is, Definitely. I feel like I feel like DreamWorks has a habit of falling into that a lot, especially with like Minions, or yes, in fact, just Minions, Ice Age, all Minions. <laughs> yes, like the last, well, and that's a shame. Go ahead. I just realized that Minions isn't actually a DreamWorks movie, <laughs> but <laughs> the gist of it, uh, Ice Age, non Pixar. And even, like, yeah. non-Disney. I don't think often. I say yeah. just a DreamWorks movie. I don't either. think so either. But Blue like, Sky. It's that. <laughs> but that. Madagascar it's... is DreamWorks. But those kinds <laughs> yes. of movies, um, like, because even non-Pixar studios will make movies that achieve that level. Like, you're a big fan of How to Train Your Dragon, yeah. for example. But it's really easy with kids' movies, even on a level where they have a good budget and they have people who know what they're doing to make movies that do just kind of pander to kids or and make crass jokes or things like that. Like, look at the nut job. And, yeah, like, well, yeah. Landon brought that up a little bit on our year-end podcast where he was like, why don't you want your kids to have something of substance? Like, why do you just want to sit them in front of a screen and have them just, like, spoon-fed nonsense? And that was right. his biggest, like, positive thing about this movie is that it has a lot of substance and it has a lot of, like, very deep emotional meaning. And so when I was younger, I moved a lot, um, including at certain ages and and like a lot and related a lot of comedians like John Mulaney have jokes about how a lot of times us Midwestern folks or certain European descent, whether you're Irish or German or, you know, whatever stereotype is like you bottle up the sadness or the bad feelings like you just bottle up inside and coming from those two scenarios as a young child without getting too deep into a personal well, um, it is really like legitimately important that people know that they can let loose a little bit, that they can let themselves feel those emotions without feeling bad about feeling any of those emotions, just purely feeling them and then kind of, you feel them and then you, you know, you let that all out and then you're not your best, but you're like, you feel better. And then you kind of go from there. It's like a way, instead of just bottling up, it's better to go ahead and express it and then go on from there feeling better than you would if you just tried to keep it down all day, all week. Definitely. We talked about that kind of, um, briefly when we did the Miyazaki episode about how so often children's feelings are invalidated or often ignored and I think that that's another um, good thing that happens in this movie is that her parents aren't 
mad at her necessarily for the way she's acting. Like they might like her dad lashes out at her, but for the most part, they try to be really understanding. Like they're not mad that she gets on the bus and tries to run away. They're just happy that she's back and they're just happy that she's going to open up to them. And I think it's important for kids to see things like that, but it's also important for parents to see things like that because I think a lot of the time parents get really mixed up and just trying to do like trying to be what they think is the best idea of a parent and a lot of times that results in division between the parent and the child and if you imagine like an entire family going to see this movie and then maybe afterwards talking about it or talking about how it related to whatever they may be going through as a family unit I think that that's an incredibly helpful tool in that regard as well yeah definitely and I also think that it's important you know from seeing it at like, as a parent, I think it's important that they showed that, you know, kids pick up on things in ways that I don't think adults always give them credit for. And I don't think, you know, Riley's parents clearly didn't mean to put pressure on her to be happy. But, you know, Riley starting the hockey game in the new house to cheer up her parents, you know, she picked up on that stress and frustration from her parents. And then when, you know, her mom is tucking her in and she says, you know, you've stayed our happy girl through everything, you know, it's not meant to be, you know, a statement telling Riley who to be and how to act. And it's it's truly meant and coming from a place of thankfulness and, you know, thank you for, you know, helping us and helping this helping to make it easy on us. But that's a lot to put on a kid. You know, that's, and kids are going to pick up on feeling that need to be strong, especially for your parents. I think one of the hardest things as a child is when you realize that your parents aren't indestructible and when you realize that they don't have all the answers. And it's really hard to, you know, when you feel like you need to carry that weight for your parents. So I think it's really important, especially, you know, in the final climax of the movie when Riley comes back home. You know, she says, I know you guys don't want me to miss, you know, Minnesota, but I do. And I know that you want me to be happy, but I'm not right now. And I think it's really important that they also explored that and, you know, the pressure that we put on ourselves to keep things together for the people that we love instead of allowing ourselves to feel what we need to feel. One of the other things going back to, you know, some of the criticisms of the movie, or not necessarily criticisms, but just things that people didn't love or were on the fence about, I saw a critique that they that someone had written, and I wish I could remember where I saw it so that we could link to it, but I saw someone say that they didn't feel like the problem was edgy enough, and I thought that that was really kind of a slap in the face to this movie because I think it's a big deal to just upend your life and move, and I think it's a big deal to not feel okay. I think... I don't think it needed an edgy reason for Riley to not be happy. I don't, because I don't think in life, like, you're not always sad for some huge, dark reason. And I think that it's important to show that it's just okay to be sad no matter what you're sad about. And I I was almost offended by that critique of the movie. Um, I didn't think it was fair. I thought it missed the point, And I thought it took away from what this movie was actually trying to accomplish. Well, also not to mention, she's 11. Like, what right. edgy situation is she supposed to be sad about? Like, when you're 11, you're sad about moving. You're sad about missing your friends. You're sad about, like, your goldfish dying. Like, you're not, like... Unless, like, something horribly traumatic has happened to you, which, again, I feel like that would be a complete, like, 
for instance, if it was like her parents were divorcing or somebody died or somebody right. had cancer, like I feel like that would be just like too much at once for something that's just trying to simplify an already very complicated tangle of emotion and issues. Right, I think it then takes away from what the movie is about because then the movie becomes a movie about what happens when your parents get divorced. It becomes a movie about what happens when somebody dies. And I think it's really important that there's just this movie about what happens when you're not okay. That, like, it's almost harder to do a movie that's that you think is so good because you can only say, God, it's just so good at this and it's so good at this. Like, that's why I brought up Bing Bong and kind of right. things that... Because you kind of need something to go up, like you need something to kind of like work against. Well, my issue in the movie is that it personally victimized me and made me cry for a full 45 minutes. <laughs> I mean, something else that I really liked about this, and I'm just trying to think of things that I haven't seen people talk about a lot. Because like you said, this is a movie that we all just love to death. Um, I loved that this kind of takes all the best qualities of all of the Pixar catalog and just puts it into this movie. You know, it's a buddy movie with, it's a buddy adventure movie with joy and sadness. And that kind of recalls Buzz and Woody and Toy Story. It's got a real element of family, which, you know, reminded me of Finding Nemo in The Incredibles. And there's that retrieval narrative of like something that's lost that you have to find or getting back somewhere. Again, Toy Story and, um... And Finding Nemo, and then also just the progressive conversation that, you know, reminded me of what Wally started. I really felt like they looked at the entire filmography of Pixar and said, what makes all of those movies work? And then it took elements of all of that and put it into this movie. And I really feel like, you know, 2015 was kind of the year of the female buddy movie. And it was so cool to see Joy and Sadness team up. And I, I just love every message that this movie put out. I'm glad you got into the structure a bit because that is one thing when when you run out of good things to say about a movie, it's kind of fun to go into how the movie was made. And they really, part of, because, I mean, every movie really gets a lot of effort put into it, but Pixar especially gets commendations for how much effort they really put into their movies. So... So uh, I, l I listened to Pete Doctor's interview with Terry Gross on Fresh Air and a couple other things that really gave some background into the making of this movie. And they went, to, they actually went to psychologists and learned about emotions and really put in the research into all these different emotions. And he talked about how um, some people thought there were as many as 30-some emotions and other people thought there were as few as three. So coming up with, you know, the five that they came down to was a real struggle and for a while two things in this area really stood out to me there was there were going to be six emotions with one of the other one being surprise right and that came from dr paul ekman who kind of identified those as the primary six emotions and they ended up dropping surprise because they thought because they thought fear kind of doubled as that or they were closely enough related that they didn't need another character for that but what I want to get into more is that for a long time, or a good amount of time anyways, they went down the road of this movie with fear being in the spot of sadness. Right. Where sadness ended up. So for a long time, it was going to be joy and fear butting up against each other, working together, and finally kind of understanding each other, and coming to grips with fear and how fear is a good thing. 
And they just couldn't come up with an ending for that until they finally had this <laughs> kind of too perfect to believe breakthrough at the last minute about how sadness was the thing that really could tie it all together. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on what you think a movie with fear in the place of sadness would look like in place of this. Yeah. Um, I definitely have a lot of thoughts about that. Cause I have been thinking about it cause I read that as well. Um, I think that that for me could have maybe ruined the movie for me. Um, I don't like laughing at the idea that someone is scared about something or that someone is feeling anxiety towards a situation or that someone is stressed out. I don't think it's funny to, like, scare people necessarily. I mean, sometimes I do, but, like, I don't like the idea that then a lot of the comedy of this movie would have been rooted in fear and being scared of something. I just, I don't like the message that that sends. And I think for what they were trying to accomplish, it had to be joy and sadness. I think joy and fear would have gone down a territory that when you're talking about mental health, you have to be really careful and you have to be really sensitive to what people are going through and the issues that they face. And I just think that that wouldn't have, I don't think it would have sat well with me at all. I think that it's important that, you know, we have to understand sadness, and a lot of people don't. And I think that this movie does a good job of explaining why that's there. It basically tells you sadness is an SOS signal that you send out. And I, I don't think that fear necessarily needs that same exposition. I just, I just think that it would have gone down a road that I wouldn't have been able to join in on. I think primarily people understand fear, and that's the difference. Definitely. Sad, sadness is, like you said, super misunderstood and something we have a much greater need to talk about. But also I feel like making fear the lead puts it into like that gritty, like runaway, lost in the forest kind of genre where you have essentially a child who is lost and alone and completely terrified. And I just we have so many movies that have that kind of theme or have that kind of thing going on, even if it's not, like, a kid, particularly, like, you have, like, Homeward Bound or, like, The Brave Little Toaster, which is right. traumatizing. Like, it's super... An American tale. Yeah, it's, like, super Fible. hard to watch stuff like that. And it... Definitely. Does, I think that does, like, I think instead of comforting kids and making them feel validated, it just freaks them out. Because let me tell you, I rewatched The Brave Little Toaster a couple of years ago. That shit is fucked up. Like, nope. Will not, cannot do it. <laughs> Absolutely not. What? Sorry. I will that. absolutely not rewatch that movie. Can't do it. Won't do it. Absolutely not. That and an American Tale fucked me up, and I refused to put myself back in those situations. Exactly. And so I think that was that would be where we would end up with a movie like that, as opposed to something so moving and phenomenal and great. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I, I mean, I think a lot of that also comes down to. Sadness is a much more complicated concept and a lot more rich for uh, the kind of discussion and exploration. Right. And besides that, we have so many, you kind of mentioned, we have so many things about fear. We don't have a lot of movies that totally understand grief or sadness, which is why it's kind of, I kind of love it when we get those movies because it's a really hard thing to not only understand, but also to portray in a way that helps other people understand. 
Yeah, I think this pairs up with Big Hero 6 really nicely in that respect. I thought that was another movie that really does a good job at exploring sadness and grief. And um, just I just want to backtrack a little bit. I don't mean to say that I enjoy laughing at sadness or that I think it's funny. Um, but I think that, you know, generationally speaking, our generation has kind of come up with this way of dealing with, like, the economy and the fact that none of us have jobs and everything with just laughing and being like, ate ramen for the 12th time this week, can't afford to pay my car payment, car got repoed last week, actually, LOL. And I think that that's kind of what sadness does, you know, like when she just falls on the floor and is like, I'm too sad to walk. Like, (laughs) that's something that I have heard all of my friends say multiple times. So I don't think it's laughing at sadness, but I think that it's how people in our age group have learned to deal with it. You know, we just kind of just roll with the punches and we just laugh at it. And I think that that movie speaks to that also. I think, I just think this movie speaks to each generation, you know, we talked about this a little bit, but it's not a movie for, for kids. It's not a movie for old people. It's not a movie for parents. It's just a movie for everyone. I do have one final point that I want to touch on. Um, another thing that came from looking into Pete Doctor talking about this movie is its approach to memory. And obviously during the movie, too. Um, so this movie doesn't quite portray memory as complicated as memory is. Because memory is a thing that shifts. Um, he kind of in in their studies, they kind of came across the the research that talks about how when you recall a memory, you're kind of recreating that memory. It's going to be slightly different every time. So the, the the movie doesn't quite go into that aspect of memory of how it can be unreliable and shifting, but it does really get into how there are many different shades to memories and as an extension, our experiences, how it isn't, you don't often have just a happy thought, an angry thought, a disgusted thought, like all these emotions are kind of working together or against each other, mixing together. And I think one of the key discoveries of this, of the, the actual emotions in this movie, as we see at the end is that, you know, there are, there are these different aspects to every moment you have. And so the memories at the end are all mixed together, which. Because as you like, when you get older, you kind of can look back on things like that and realize that maybe what you thought was like only a super happy moment was in fact, like preceded by a sad moment or like you were really angry about something and then you were happy later and stuff like that. Which is another way of coming to appreciate emotions like sadness is because sadness kind of helps make way for joy and all these other emotions. And I think the way it kind of deals with those memories is cool because one of the running themes of this movie is how when sadness gets close to the joyful memories, she's turning them sad or we think she's turning them sad. And the discovery that there was always some sadness to these memories to begin with, especially as we get older and look back on our own memories with more sadness than we thought at the time. We look back on that joy with a certain amount of sadness and kind of appreciate the sadness around that. I think that kind of depth is present throughout the movie. And it's just so smart in how it approaches all of these things, not just emotions, but also memories and how those two 
are woven together and how those change over time. Yeah, there's a great chart that somebody came up with, and I think they posted it on Vox or VOX, but it's basically a chart that cro- that tells you what emotion you get when a memory or an event has a little bit of both emotion. So it shows you, like, what is joy and sadness? What is joy and fear? What is joy and disgust? What is joy and anger? And I think that it's important to understand what happens when you get both of those things. And again, to understand that you know, the way that we perceive memories are going to change. And that's okay. And maybe a sad memory someday will be a happy memory and vice versa. And maybe, you know, they'll be mixed. And I, you know, I agree with you. I just, it's just a smart movie. I can't say that enough times. (laughs) I think it's just really good because it's, it's easy to forget that that's kind of what makes you a fully formed human. Right. And that, yeah, and again, like, for instance, if you've ever been broken up with, you're going to look at that in the moment as a sad thing, but then if you think about it later, it usually ends up being a lot better for you in the long run, which at the time is really hard to see, but then later, you know, it makes a lot more sense. Or all those memories just turn red and you're just angry all the time. <laughs> also a valid point, yes. <laughs> yes, but that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> the fe- the feelings podcast 2.0 minus the movie discussion yeah. let the right films in after dark <laughs> oh my god we do not need any more like nonsense <laughs> um like um superfluous <laughs> discussion but yeah so it kind of sounds like we are winding down tyler do you have any final points to make just that i was just about to do that very thing <laughs> no, my my the memories were really my final point. Awesome. Eva, do you have anything else to add at the very end? Um, I mean, I've said I love this movie over and over again. I've called it smart and important over and over again. Um, yeah, we're going to have one to do th- a drinking game with the word important. <laughs> well, yeah, but but the one thing that I haven't said is that I'm really grateful for this movie. I think that it's I think it's going to give a voice to a lot of people who didn't have one. And I think it's really going to help people come to terms with what they're going through and have the vocabulary and the understanding to speak about it and to open up and to ask for help. Because at the like, that's really what this movie is about, that it's okay to ask for help and it's okay to talk about your feelings. And I, I just can't think of another movie, Pixar, Disney or not, kids movie or not, animated or not, that has as that has a message that's as important as this one and there i just said important again so to anyone who's not drunk yet you are now (laughs) yeah my i don't really have a final point i just wanted to personally apologize to everyone who worked on this movie for my rash and hasty judgment based on a teaser trailer and again admit that i was wrong in your defense that scene is pretty out of place even when you're actually watching the movie i didn't feel like it flowed this is true very true. I do have one final point. I'm just glad it's not the Revenant. No, oh my god! God damn it! Jesus, no, that's not Tyler. I just want to give my appreciation that they have the final minute of the movie that they do because it's basically a bunch of jokes, and I just love it so much. Oh my god! Like the cats and the dog. I, yeah, I was yes. just waiting for those two. Rashida Jones is the popular girl. <laughs> girl. Girl, girl. <laughs> oh my god, yes. That was so good. The whole, yes. I just, yes. That whole, Pixar is always really good with their credit scenes, and this <laughs> yeah. is absolutely no exception. It was perfect. All right. 
Alrighty, so we are going to move into recommendations. Uh, Tyler, <laughs> what movie would you recommend as a follow-up to this movie? Well, first of all, Kayla, I would like to congratulate you for getting the right segment first this time. <laughs> I know. I am just when I was email- really proud of you. When I was emailing people back, I had to go look at the show notes before because I, I was giving them like a rundown in the thing. <laughs> so I had to go look at the show notes to make sure I got it in the right order. Well, you know what? You I did it. it. You did it. <laughs> Well, uh, my recommendation this week, it'd be so easy just to pick another Pixar movie. Not that there is anything wrong with that because there are so many good ones. But I wanted to kind of go with the emotional route and the emotional intelligence route of it. Uh, So my movie for this week is 50-50. It's from a couple years ago, uh, written by Seth Rogen and his friend who actually had cancer which i'm gonna look up his name because he deserves more credit than being the guy who had cancer you know (laughs) who inspired the movie (laughs) yeah will riser will riser um so this movie he will riser's not in the movie but seth rogan co-wrote it with him and it's directed by jonathan levine starring joseph gordon levitt in the will riser role and it's about uh, this guy who discovers he has cancer and has a 50-50 chance to survive. And the movie is just kind of following him through his diagnosis, his treatment, kind of, you know, the the big stuff that happens at the end that I won't give away, and really dealing with uh, grief and coping and the way you react to news that this bad and that there's not really a lot you can do about it you kind of just have to wait even as you get treatment it's like a long-term thing you're just waiting and coping and how all the other people in your life kind of react to you or how they themselves react and how you almost have to comfort them in certain ways i just think it's a really smart movie when it comes to emotion especially when you consider that it's a seth rogan comedy you might not think that those are always the most um, emotionally intelligent or thoughtful, but partially because of its real life, its kind of anchor in the real world being based on a real story. Fifty uh, Fifty is just, uh, besides being a great movie, one that really had me feeling a lot of true earned emotions. And I felt like it dealt with them in a very intelligent manner. Kayla? Okay. Um, I kind of thought a lot about what movie should be the follow-up to this movie. And I also didn't want to just pick another children's movie because for mostly because for the most part, our audience is not children. So um, after some debate, I decided upon the movie Obvious Child, which stars Jenny Slate and Gabby Hoffman, and to put it quite simply, it is about a young woman who accidentally becomes pregnant after a one-night stand and wrestles with the decision to get an abortion. And I felt that it was similar to Inside Out in that it uses a mixture of humor, like a mixture, it uses this really interesting mixture of humor to deal with such a very serious situation and in the same way that I felt with Inside Out, I felt the first time that I saw this movie that somebody was speaking to me or speaking, not necessarily maybe to me personally, but to 
women who have been in that situation because it isn't very often that you have that topic talked about without it being some sort of like unspoken hushed up tragedy or this really maudlin movie where the woman goes back and forth and then jumps off the operating table and decides she doesn't want to do it and I think it's really um I don't want to say important again I think (laughs) I think it's really meaningful in this age where we have so much misinformation spread about organizations like Planned Parenthood and their procedures to have a movie that tells it like it is that deals with the fact that like yes this is a hard decision but it's also not a life-ending decision it's not the worst thing that could ever happen to you as a human being it's just a medical procedure that lots of people have done and it's time that we start to talk about it like normal people instead of freaking out and acting like idiots all the time much in the way that in inside out you deal with sadness like a smart person and not like an idiot <laughs> so um it's, like i said it stars jenny slate and gabby hoffman it has really great depictions of female friendship i think it does a really good job of handling this what was supposed to be casual relationship that suddenly finds itself in this really weird position and yeah it's just really heartfelt it made me i was really happy when i saw it it made me cry a couple times i highly recommend it eva have you made your final selection i have first of all big fan of both movies that you guys just recommended um i kind of my pick was kind of inspired by tyler bringing up you know his fascination with how the movie addressed memories and what memories are like and how we register them um so i'm gonna recommend the last five years um it was just put up yeah it was just put up on netflix um it's a it is based off a musical um it's a movie adaptation of a staged musical um it stars the anna kendrick who we all know and love, and Jeremy Jordan, who is um, who can recently be seen in Supergirl as Wynn. Um, and the movie is... I'm so fascinated with how both the play and the movie tell its story. It's told from every other scene is from each person's perspective. So the movie starts from Anna Kendrick's point of view, and then the next scene is Jeremy Jordan's point of view. And Anna Kendrick's character is telling you the story from... It's the story of a relationship, you know, starting and ending over the course of five years. So Anna Kendrick's character is showing you the story from end to beginning. And Jeremy Jordan's character is showing you the story from beginning to end. And you only get that person's perspective in each scene. On stage, it's done with just the two actors and they never interact. They're just acting to the audience, basically. And I think that it ties in with the memories because, you know, you don't know the... You know, there's the saying that, you know, there's the truth and then there are the two sides of the truth or whatever that saying is, you know, how each person perceives it and then the truth is somewhere in the middle. And I think that's what this movie really explores, that, you know, you're seeing two different sides of it and you don't know what... You know, the fact of the matter is that we don't know what that relationship actually looks like. We only know what it looked like from Anna Kendrick's character's point of view, and we only know what it looked like from Jeremy Jordan's character's point of view. We don't know what it actually looked like. So it's also a musical. I love the music. It's one of my favorite musicals ever, and we always can use Anna Kendrick singing more. So that would be my follow-up recommendation. That is a great movie that we both love, so... Super extra brownie points. Especially, Perfect. 
since two of our mo- recommendations this week had Anna Kendrick in them. Dang it, I messed it up. They <laughs> always, it always should. Everything should involve Anna Kendrick. I, really you never should. watch a movie and think, man, I wish Anna Kendrick was not in this. It should really be a Kendrick corner. Not yes. so much Chris Corner. <laughs> I would I could live love, with an Anna Kendrick Corner. I will host the Anna Kendrick Corner. I am so all about that. Awesome. So you've got Chris Pine, I've got Chris Evans, and also Anime Trash Heap, and Eva will handle the Anna Kendrick Corner. But I've been on the Anna Kendrick Corner since Up in the Air. It's okay. You guys can co-host that one. Mm-hmm. And I Up guess in the Patrick Air is a ha- great movie. <laughs> yes. All right. And so getting to my stat of the week. We went pretty straightforward this week. Pixar has released 16 feature films under its umbrella. Seven of those are on the IMDb 250, leaving nine off. Some of those are going to be Givens. Car- the Cars movies and The Good Dinosaur are not on there. Monsters University is not on there. Toy Story 2 is not on there. The list of movies that made it are Toy Story, Toy Story 3, Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo, Up, Wally, and Inside Out. And I gotta say, for the most part, I do think that is probably pretty close to the top seven movies that Pixar has put out. Yes, outside of the horrendous crime of Ratatouille not being on yeah, there. Yeah, Rat- that's the one I pointed out, too. <laughs> Ratatouille not being on the list is... It, I checked, it's close. It's an eight. Dang. Sorry, did you say the... Was The Incredibles on the list? The Incredibles is the other notable uh, exclude, the other notable one that's not on the list. I I love that movie so much. I wonder if it got compared to Atlas Shrugged a little bit too much. <laughs> what? You haven't seen all the stuff about how it's like very Ayn Randian. No, I don't want to know that because it'll ruin it for me. Okay, never I'm, we're never going to talk about I'm that again. I'm amazed how you haven't seen that. No, probably. You know, I might have at one point, and I just blocked it out. Of lock my it out. Block it out. <laughs> I do yeah. also want to note that Pete Doctor has written or directed six movies for Pixar, and all six of them are among that seven. Wow! So, doing good work, Pete. Pretty good. My uh, interesting trivia for the week is that. For the beginning scenes, when Riley was a toddler, instead of getting, you know, another voice actress or anyone to do that, they literally just took booze lines from Monsters, Inc. and recycled them in, which was kind of hilarious to me. Love it. Love it. (laughs) would like to thank Eva, my co-undercut mom, for being on the podcast with us. I'm super excited that we finally got to do this. I know this took like three months to figure out, but... (laughs) I am thrilled. I hope you guys are thrilled. I had a lot of fun. And thank you guys for having me. Absolutely. We will have to have you on again soon. Thank you for letting me tell you my feelings about a movie about feelings. (laughs) The best kind. Exactly. So if you are looking to get a hold of us in any way, shape, or form, you can always email us. The email is ltrfipod at gmail.com. Probably a more fun and interactive way to get a hold of us is our Twitter, which is mostly run by Tyler, but I will interject sometimes. It is twitter.com slash ltrfipod. We have a Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash in, where we post um, episodes, show notes, and also links to interesting movie things that we care about. We have a Tumblr, which is letthewrightfilmsin.tumblr.com, which is where show notes are. We post various 
art graphics based on the movies we have talked about, like interesting minimalist posters, things like that. Super cool. Um, if you are somehow unsure of how to listen to us at this point, we are <laughs> available for download on iTunes. If you would like to rate and review us on iTunes, we would super, super, super appreciate that. I know some of our friends do just download it every week, even if they don't listen to it because they don't want to spoil the movie. And I just want to shout those people out and say thank you for doing that because it's very nice of you. We have a SoundCloud page, and we are available on all of your favorite podcast apps, such as Stitcher, Podbay FM, Overcast, etc., etc. And yeah, so thank you for listening, and that's going to be the end of our show this week. One last thing. Please do go back and check out some of our end-of-the-year content, especially our 2015 Guestapalooza, a list of uh, some of our favorite films of 2015 and many of our guest favorite films of the year. It's a good year for movies, and I can't wait to do that shenanigan again. I would like to point out as our final closing thing, uh, Brad Easton Ellis said that 2015 was one of the worst years in film, and I fucking hate Brad Easton Ellis, and he's wrong, and you should never listen to him. See, I don't think Brad Easton Ellis made a movie, so it can't be one of the worst no, years. he made a movie one time. And it starred James no, Dean. No, la- last and... year, I mean. Last year. <laughs> oh. Yeah. He didn't make a movie last year, so it can't be one of the worst mo- years in movies. Yeah. So basically, in in lieu of trashing trashing Jurassic World or The Revenant, I would just like to say Brad Easton Ellis is a terrible person and always will be. <laughs> but Idris Elba is the gunslinger, and that's awesome. And always will be. So awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So the Revenant sucks, right? Oh my oh god. And god. that's gonna be a wrap. <laughs> maybe <laughs> could you not use such violent language with my children again just don't have cats eva i did not ask <laughs> you didn't have to ask you had me on guest <laughs> you had me as a guest on this podcast my opinion is desired apparently both good and bad exactly <laughs> you don't get to choose what eva agrees with you on that's true exactly take right. it or leave it so tyler what have you watched lately why is everyone a better host than we are thank you eva <laughs> <laughs> this is where you guys give a commercial for like some product that you both really love like catnip or something <laughs> oh man what do i love you guys like, gotta well, get some product placements you well know, you know we, we gotta get that sponsorship down but we need to get a few more listeners first i feel like once we get triple digit listeners i could start looking around about some sponsorships yeah, like, what are you reading lately? Oh, did you know if you use audible.com slash let the right films in, you can get a free month of audiobooks. And this month, our favorite book is Tyler Oakley's biography, because he shares the name Tyler with our host. We're just going to fake it till we make it. We'll do fake spot, like fake That's ads a, for real no, sponsors. No, 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 you guys should, no, you guys should do fake ads for fake sponsors, like create fake stuff. Like there was a radio station my parents used to listen to that would do, um, Heine, like the Heine winery, and you could go behind the library and get some Heine, and like they'd be these fake ads and everything. And I feel like you guys could really shine in that. 
category. <laughs> yeah, like I feel like does that too, I feel like you guys could places. really be good at that. I'm I'm really good at making shit up. I know you are. <laughs> That's your specialty, as a matter of fact. Speaking of which, you want to know what Leo goes inside in the oh, Revenant that was actually oh, pretty. Imp- oh my <laughs> god! God, I'm literally gonna kill you. <laughs> Done you with you. Care about what all happened to horses in the Revenant? No. Fired. I want to talk about Inside Out. You are fired. Fired again. I'm hiring Eva and Kyle as my permanent fixture co-hosts. Okay, but I just want to say, Kayla, now you understand how Tyler feels during the Chris Evans corner. <laughs> <laughs> no, because that is fun and it doesn't go on for 20 minutes. Sometimes it does. No, it doesn't. Sometimes it has never it gone on for 20 minutes. Not on the podcast, I, maybe. I didn't mean to. Does Leo cry in The Revenant at all? There might be a single tear. Does he just single suffer? Manly. Does he suffer Wait. for the whole time? He's mostly just gritting and determined throughout it. <laughs> hey, uh, while we're like taking this brief intermission, have you told Eva your, your joke about the end of The Revenant? Oh, God. The consideration. Oh, 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 okay, okay. Um, God. Okay, so this at the This is the end, last thing we're talking the about. Last, the last shot of The Revenant, and this doesn't really give away much besides I'm the not going to see the movie. I have no, the fact even that if you Leo were telling is, me that it was good, I have no desire to find out for myself after how much I've heard you complain about it. I might include this in the bloopers, though. You never know. Go for but, it. But, like, all it really gives away is that Leo is present at the end of the movie, which he's in the whole movie, so whatever. But, so the movie... The final shot pans in on Leo. Tight shot on Leo's face. And he's looking slightly off camera. He turns and he turns. And for a second or two, he's looking into the camera before it fades to black. And he is beaten and haggard. And he has been stabbed and mauled and he's bleeding. And the only thing I could think of as he looks into the camera at the very end is of Leo just muttering for your consideration. <laughs> Roll credits. I've heard that joke like five times. Roll That's credits. so funny. That's amazing. He looks into the camera. The final shot of the movie is Leo looking into the camera. Fuck this movie. Fuck this movie so much. We can call this podcast The Revenant of uh, Editing. <laughs> or you could just call it Lesbians The Reckoning. <laughs> yes. I'm just going to email all the big, ba- like we're going to email A.V. Clement Vulture, like, please include our podcast this week. I suffered for <laughs> five hours toiling away in the editing room <laughs> because I wouldn't shut up about The Revenant. <laughs> all right. Okay.